Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Four Persons Show on Blog Talk Radio. We are your enthusiastic and faithful Catholic apostolate. For more information about what we do, go to our show page at thefourpersons.com and our blog site at thefourpersons.net. To call in tonight with your comment or question, dial 515-602-9655. The number, again, is 515-602-9655. Friday evening edition of the Four Person Show. And when I say special, it's because normally in this time slot, we would have the Luke Haskell Show. But we had the Luke Haskell Show last night for one week only because uh, Luke has personal business to attend to. So tonight we're going to be talking about some objections that were raised by a very good friend of mine. His name is James, and he is a Protestant. And he's raised some objections and did so in a very civil way, very cogent way. Um, but uh, I want to address those, those objections uh, in just a civil and a cogent way. Now, I want to read, I'm going to read an article that I wrote some time ago and I just happened to bump into it on the internet. Saw somebody post something about Mary, and I started reading it and said, "Wow, that's uh, that's very familiar." <laughs> and it turns out it was something that I posted, I would say probably a year ago, posted on the internet, and it kind of found its way around the message boards and, and everything, and, and, and found its way back to me. And uh, eventually, the person who posted it gave me the uh, you know, the uh, attribution to it, and I was very pleased by that. But I want to read it, because it kind of addresses these points that were raised by him, and then I'm going to bring on Richard, and we'll kind of discuss these things. So, here goes. To understand Mary, you must understand the typology of the Old Testament. Think of, the old, think of the New Testament as the revelation of Jesus and the building of his kingdom. Then think of the Old Testament as the blueprints of how that kingdom will be built. So you start by how the books of the Old Testament are laid out. We start with the creation story, then the patriarchs or the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then the priests, then the judges, then the kings, and the prophets. Now, all of this points forward to one person, 
who is creator, father, priest, judge, king, and prophet. All of the things revealed in God's word. In fact, he is revealed as God's word in John chapter 1. So we should be able to agree that the Bible, the whole Bible, is pointing to Jesus, his mission of salvation, and the creation of his kingdom. Where we start to divert is, one, how is that plan implemented? And two, what does that kingdom look like today? It all starts in Genesis 3 with the story of the fall. Genesis 3.15 is accepted by most mainstream Christian churches as the first prophecy of the Messiah. Protestants typically agree with Catholics here at what is occurring. At the same time God is announcing punishment on the woman, Eve, he is proclaiming that the serpent's head will be crushed through a new woman, Mary, and her, quote, seed, unquote. Now the prophecy would have seemed astounding to any Jew reading it because the seed always comes from the man. Here God is prophesying offspring through the seed of only the woman. Unheard of. Now, so far I have said nothing that a Protestant pastor is likely to disagree with, but that is about to change. First of all, Protestants and Catholics agree that her seed slash offspring refers first and foremost to Jesus Christ. Where we disagree is on two points. One, seed, offspring is plural. So it refers to Christ and the rest of her children. We will revisit this later. Two, it is the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Now, Protestants changed the wording to fit their ideology. From Hebrew or Greek, and according to the sentence structure, it says, she will crush your head while you strike at her heel. Now, you wonder, may wonder why I started here, but it's very important, and I'll show you why. I would like you to ponder this question. We know that Lucifer was thrown out of heaven after the war of rebellion. But what was the specific cause of that war? It relates directly to what I've just covered here. It must be made very clear that the first Bible, the Vulgate, as well as the first English Bible, the Douay Reims, translated this passage correctly as she will crush your head while you strike at her heel. The English KJV of 1611 was the very first version to translate it as he and his, and sadly many versions have followed. From a purely linguistic standpoint, the KJV translation is untenable. In the original languages, the gender of the pronoun was assigned to the subject, God addressing the enmity that will be placed clearly says it will be between you, the serpent, and the woman, Mary. 
The enmity between the serpent and God was already in place. This is, this is something new here. There are two enmities here. A, between you and the woman, and B, between her offspring and yours. So here's how it goes. She will be your enemy. She will crush your head. You will strike at her heel. Now, I understand at face value, this seems to give rise to a sense that too much importance is being given to Mary. I understand that fear, and I'm going to help you through it. However, it must be made very clear that it is the need to diminish that fear. It is the need to diminish Mary that leads to the sentence structure actually being butchered to change the meaning. Protestants literally changed God's word to fit their ideology here. It was necessary that God establish an enemy relationship between the new woman and the devil so that he could not seduce and overcome her like he did the first woman. This is because she was to give give birth to the new man, the son of man, literally the son of Adam. The Bible consistently shows the devil and Mary as enemies. The wrath of the devil, serpent, dragon, who brought forth the Savior is the Christmas story and the salvation story. And we see it displayed vividly in the 12th chapter of John's Revelation. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth, in anguish for delivery. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems upon his head. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child, one is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God in his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now John says this is a sign that, has, that was displayed in heaven. John is referring to a past event here, as I will show you. Lucifer is shown the sign of a human creature, a woman, who will reign as queen. Note the crown. Over the angels and give birth to the Son of God himself. In other words, Lucifer, the highest angel, will be subject to a human and a woman to boot. Well, this is too much for Lucifer to handle in his pride. So what happens next? Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now 
the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. This is the establishment of the enmity between the devil and the woman, and the cause of the rebellion. Satan, as the highest angel, could not handle God elevating a pure human creature to such an important role. In verse 17, we see the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, specifically as the dragon is enraged with the woman and wages war on the rest of her children, who are the true believers of God. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. And he stood on the sands of the sea. This is now the second scripture evidence I've shown you that Mary is spiritual mother to the true Christian. I will show this at least three more times to leave no doubt. Mary was destined to be the ark of God's new covenant. After announcing his plan of salvation in Genesis 3, God spends the entire Old Testament setting the table, if you will, giving clues and creating models of how it will happen and what it will look like. Many of these clues must really be studied and applied in the New Testament with the attitude that God did nothing by accident. The blood of the Old Covenant was in the slaughter of thousands of animals by which Israel could get some taste of the awful cost of sin. The blood of the Old Covenant pointed to the blood of the New Covenant poured out at Calvary, Matthew 26, 28. Just as the Old Covenant points to the New Covenant, the Ark of the Old Covenant must point to the Ark of the New Covenant. And it surely does. And these clues tells us some staggering things if we're only willing to pay attention. First, let's look at the three items that were carried inside of the Ark. First item, the Ten Commandments, the Word of God. And the Word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us, John chapter 1. In other words, the Word of God is a person. The second item, the manna, the bread from heaven. I am the true bread from heaven, says, says Jesus in John chapter 6. The bread from heaven is a person. Third item held inside the Ark of the Covenant, the staff of Aaron, the shepherd, and the high priest. John's Gospel, chapter 10, tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd. And Hebrews chapter 6 and 7 tells us that he is the high priest. So the Ark of the Covenant carried in symbolic form Jesus. Mary carried the actual Jesus. The symbolic contents of the Ark of the Covenant made it holy. How holy? Uzzah the soldier was struck dead just for touching it, to prevent it from falling on the ground. You see this in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Well, if the box with the symbolic Jesus was that holy, 
How holy would the real mother who carried the real Jesus? She carried the I am in her womb for nine months. In Exodus, we are given a clear indication of how holy the sacred vessel of a person was to be. That's why she is the enemy of the devil, because he can't touch her. Exodus 25 gives us meticulous instruction of how the ark was to be built. And there are two things in particular that have to be noticed. First, it was made with acacia wood. Acacia wood is incorruptible. Secondly, it was covered inside and out with the purest gold. These clues mount and mount and mount to tell us that Mary was not an ordinary person. Not divine, mind you, but not ordinary. The holiest, pure woman that ever lived. And she had to be because of the preciousness of the child she would carry. All right, I was trying to make a correction here. All right, give me just a second. I was trying to make a correction. I lost my place here. Okay. She had to be because of the preciousness of the child she would carry. Mary is the queen mother and our mother, full of grace. Here are five Old Testament passages that refer to the Queen Mother. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse, verse 13. He also removed Makkah, his mother, from being Queen Mother because she had an abominable image made for Asherah, and Asa cut, her, cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 13. Jehu met the kinsmen of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the kinsmen of Uzziah. And we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. Second Chronicles chapter 15, verse 16. Even Makkah, his mother, King Asa removed from being queen mother because she made an abominable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it in the brook Kidron. Jeremiah 13, 18. Say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat for a beautiful crown has come down for your head. Jeremiah 29, 2. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The position of queen mother is the second highest office in the Davidic kingdom. She was second only to the king. Her job was to take people's petitions to the king. The queen mother was always the mother of the king. In other words, if you had a request of the king, the system that was put in place in the Davidic kingdom was that you would take the petition to the queen and she would go to the king on your behalf. If you could open your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 2, I'd like to walk you through this. Okay, let me set the scene, because it's an absolutely perfect typology. Protestants have long times told me that to pray is also to worship. 
I'm going to prove that that's untrue. So let me set the scene. Adonijah is the brother of King Solomon. The queen mother, Bathsheba, is mother to both of them. Pay attention to this detail. It's very important. So Adonijah approaches his queen with a request and just listen to what he said. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse you. Do not refuse me, she said to him. Say on. And he said, pray, ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Abishai the Shunammite as my wife. Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. Pray, ask the king. Adonijah is praying to Bathsheba, so to speak, which means that he is asking her to speak for him. Well, this is exactly what we Catholics do. The queen, in return, promises to go to the king on his behalf. Now, just wait till you hear what happens next. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on the behalf of Adonijah, and the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat that brought out for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. The king bowed to his mother and placed her on a throne to his right. This is prophetic, and I'll prove it. Psalm 45. I have no doubt Protestants will agree that this is a prophecy of the heavenly reign of Jesus. You are the fairest of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, in your glory and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously for the cause of truth and to defend what is right. Let your right hand teach you your dread deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemy. The peoples fall under you. Your divine throne endures forever and ever. Your royal scepter is a scepter of equity. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloe and cassia. For ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Seated on his divine throne in heaven. But will you look at what is next? Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen of gold in Ophir. Hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty since he is your lord. Bow to him. There's the queen in heaven at his right hand. Luke chapter 1 is another chapter Protestants assassinated the translation of. All Luke chapter 1 does is prove everything I've said about Mary so far. Let's go through it verse by verse, starting with verse 28. And the angel being coming in said unto her, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. The word hail is translated from the Greek word kere. It is an unmistakable salutation of royalty. It is equivalent to our modern, your majesty. The only other New Testament use of this word are addressed to Jesus. Hail Rabbi and hail King of the Jews. Make no mistake, 
Gabriel is saluting his queen. And I'll prove this in a minute. The second word is a perfect past participle, meaning literally endured from the start with perfected grace or full of grace. The KJV was the first Bible not to translate this as full of grace. It means that she is spotless at full enmity with the devil. The word is kekeratomene, and the only other person in the New Testament referred to by this term is Jesus himself. This proves that Mary was without sin. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and thou shalt bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and he shall be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of David his father. And he shall reign in the house of Jacob forever. This means Jesus is the Davidic king who reigns in heaven as such. Well, guess what? That makes Mary the queen mother, which is what we've already seen in Revelation 12. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the infant leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this come to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? For behold, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the infant in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed art thou that hast believed, because those things shall be accompanied that were spoken to thee by the Lord. Elizabeth first tells Mary that she is blessed for bearing Jesus, and that she is more blessed because she heard the word of God and obeyed. Jesus says the exact same thing in Luke chapter 8. And it was told him, Thy mother and thy brethren stand with, without, desiring to see thee. Who answered, said to them, My mother and my brethren are they that hear the word of God and do it. So you first saw in Genesis 3.15, then in Revelation 12.17, then in 1 Kings 2. Now again, you hear that those who obey God have Jesus as a brother and Mary as a mother. Guess what? You're going to hear it again. John 19.26 when Jesus therefore had seen his mother and the disciples standing, whom he loved, he saith to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. After this, he saith to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own. That same John came full circle in Revelation chapters 11, 19 to 12, 17, confirming her as the Ark of the Covenant, the Queen of Heaven, assumed body and soul in heaven, the mother of God, the enemy of the devil, and the mother of all Christians. And with that, I'm going to bring on my two co-hosts. First, Richard. Richard, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. How are you, John? Doing wonderful. Let me bring on Lewis. Lewis, how are you doing tonight? Good evening. I'm happy to hear, be here, and I'm rejoicing that I can participate in this wonderful spreading of the accurate gospel. 
Yeah, it, it really is a joy, isn't it? So, first of all, let, let me just ask you, gentlemen. First of all, I wrote that, I, I guess, about uh, uh, a year ago. What are your thoughts on it? What would you like to What would you like to add to it? I want to add something to 315. Uh, I was just debating a, a Protestant on this very topic, and still am. He, for example, will try to get around Genesis 3.15 by saying that that's Eve, but that's easily disproven not to be Eve. Because if you look at Genesis 3.15, it clearly says that the woman and the seed of the woman, which is Christ, will be given enmity between Satan and his seed. And the seed of Satan is, of course, sin. Well, we know it can't be Eve for one simple reason, Eve sinned. And she was the first woman to sin, so it wouldn't make any sense for her to be the woman that um, Genesis 3.15 is talking about. The only woman that fits the criteria of being um, that, um, that Christ can be the seed of is obviously Mary. Right. And most and, Christians addition, would not dispute that. Well, they'll try. They'll say, no, the, um, Christ is the seed of Eve, and that is ridiculous. Right, Richard, your comments? Well, I agree with Lewis that that that's a very ridiculous comment for anybody to think that that Jesus is the seed of Eve. Um, clearly, he's not. Um, and that story is a reference to Mary and the Annunciation, and the Incarnation, and the Immaculate, well, she's the Immaculate Conception, but the Incarnation and the birth of Jesus Christ. And that whole, the purpose of that whole discussion is to foretell what is going to happen in what we now know as the, the the year zero, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, zero. Well, actually, that would be, you're, you're talking about the birth of Christ? I absolutely am. Yes, December, Genesis 3, December 15, 25th, 2 B.C., Correct. Yeah. So let me ask you this, Richard. Let me go to you with with this one. This was an objection my friend gave me the other day. It quotes from Luke chapter 11, where the woman cried out from the crowd, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that you sucked. And Jesus responded, Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey. I'd like to hear your answer, and then I'd like to hear uh, Lewis. How would you respond to that? Well, you know, Mary did hear the word of God directly from the angel Gabriel, and she did obey. Let it be done to me according to thy will, as thou hast hast said, according to the will of God. If I could, could, go ahead. Go ahead, Lewis. 
Um, Jimmy Aiken did a wonderful rebuttal on this, and it's also accepted by the Orthodox Church when, you know, the lady said, blessed is thee that bore you. And Jesus responds, blessed is thee who, you know, follows my word. It may sound like the compliment was going to Mary, but in reality, the compliment was going to Jesus. So when Jesus responded um, in a way that sounded that he was rejecting that, that compliment, he was, but he was rejecting the compliment aimed at him. The woman was saying something like, uh, something like, uh, saying today, hey, this job is really lucky to have an employee like you. They are very blessed to have someone like you. So, like, the compliment isn't going to, like, the job. The compliment is going to the employee. It's the same thing with that compliment. Blessed is the woman that bore you. She's saying, lucky is married to have a son like you. And Jesus uh, is turning away um, the compliment from himself and aiming it at the father. So it isn't Mary who he's denying. It's himself. It's an act of humility. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, let me tell you how I responded to, to this friend of mine. And, and me and this gentleman, um, and he may even be listening now for all I know, we're very good friends. Uh, you know, and, and he makes his arguments very civil and very cogent, and I'll, you know, I'll give him total credit. But here's how I responded to him. Context is key here, and this is why context is really important. So if I asked you, Richard, to define the the English word rather, how would you define it? The English word rather would be defined as one thing as opposed to the other. Okay. The problem with the context of that is that that you're right, but it's the context of it is it could be either preference or it could be contrast. All right. So let me give, let me give you an example. I really like vanilla ice cream, but I would rather have chocolate. I'm not saying I don't like vanilla. I'm saying that I like chocolate better. So it's, it's in terms of preference, it's, it's one is good, the other is better, right? I could, also, I could also say to you that when you go to the end of the hallway, do not turn right. Rather, you should turn left because if you don't turn left, you're not going to be able to get out of the building. Okay? Now, both of those sentences I use there are correct uses of the word rather, right? Yes. But the meaning is different. Same word, but the meaning is different. One is, yes, this is good, but this is better. Okay? And the second is, not this, but this. Well, in Greek... There's actually two different words for those two subtle differences. And the word that refers to yes, but more than that, or yes, but this is better, is the word manunge. And that is the word that Jesus is using here. So when the woman says, blessed is the womb that held you and the breast that nursed you, Jesus is affirming what the woman said. Yes, that's true. But more than that, 
blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey. So Jesus is actually affirming his mother. In fact, Jesus is actually doing the same thing that Elizabeth did. Because Elizabeth did exactly the same thing. She said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then later, Elizabeth says, blessed are you who heard the word of God and obeyed. Jesus is confirming what Elizabeth said. Yes, you are blessed because of your divine maternity. But you're even more blessed because you heard the word of God and obeyed. So what Protestants take as Jesus diminishing his mother is in fact him elevating her. What 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 do you have to say in response to that? Exactly. Oh, I think, go ahead, Lewis. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, sir. Sorry. Um Exactly. He's giving Mary the, the, the praise that she deserves, and he's also being humiliating. Like, um, he's being, um, he's showing humility by that, and he's showing humility by turning the compliment that was also aimed at him to his father. Jesus, for example, I've had Protestants that attack the Trinity and say, why hasn't Jesus ever said directly, um, he is God? He's never uttered the sentence, he is God. And my first response is, well, he has said he is God, but just not directly. He said, for example, I am one with the Father, and the Father is one with me. Or the me and the Father and the Holy Trinity are one. But they'll say, oh, that can apply to anyone. So why doesn't Jesus claim himself as God? And I'm like, well, that defeats the nature of Jesus. Jesus is God, but if he proclaimed himself to be like this great being, that would be outside of like what he came here to do. He came here to set an example for us of humility. I think so that the you. other thing. Go ahead, Richard. I'm sorry. No, um, that that's exactly. The other thing that I would say is that Jesus said that if you do not believe that I am. You will perish in your sins and be damned. And when the Pharisees accused him and said, you're not yet 50 years old, you make yourself older than Abraham, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Which is exactly the title that God the Father says of himself in the burning bush. I am. So Jesus did refer to himself as God. Jesus did not say directly, I am God but it ascribes to himself the same title. So I want to answer my, my friend's question. I want to get both of you to answer this question. He, he says, well, what do you say to those people, Protestants, who say that it sounds like we're elevating Mary to an improper level? First, first Richard, go ahead. You answer Richard, and when you're done, Lewis, Lewis will give his answer. Okay, we are not elevating Mary to an improper level. She is first among equals as it applies to the angels and saints. So she has a separate place above them. However, she does not have the same place as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. She sits on her own level, 
and she's a step below God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but she's a step above the angels and saints, as evidenced by the fact that when we seek Mary's assistance through an intercessory prayer, we are asking her to pray for us just like we would ask a friend to pray for us. Hey, John, pray for my special intention. Hey, Lewis, pray for my special intention, please. I need prayers. And that's what we're doing when, when, when we talk to Mary, just like with any of the saints, uh, be it St. Michael, St. Boniface, St. Benedict, St. Therese of Lisieux. But Mary is in a class by herself as to the saints and as to the Holy Trinity. She's a step below the Trinity and a step above the saints. What do you think about this argument, before I go to Lewis, uh, what do you think about this argument that they make that says, well, show me in the Bible where it says, were were there any example of anyone praying to Mary? Well, here's the problem with that. With the exception of John's gospel, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but with the exception of John's gospel, uh, I understand that the other gospels And most of the epistles were written at a time when Mary was still alive. So she was still alive. She was still on earth. I believe the other three Gospels were all written before she died. Uh, Is that correct? Uh, Let me go to Lewis for that. That is exactly correct. And I also do want to add one strong thing that I always get Protestants with this. I would say that Scripture does teach you can pray to Mary and the saints. If you actually turn to the book of Revelations, Revelations um, shows the saints alive even prior in heaven prior to even the second coming of Christ. If you turn to Revelation 5.8, it shows elders in heaven, again, worshiping Christ, getting down in their knees in Christ, um, to celebrate the, the slain lamb, which is Christ. And in Revelations 5, it shows them taking the prayers of God's people and presenting them to Christ. Well, uh, the book of Revelations shows by that example that the people in heaven can be prayed to because they're aware. They're able to give our prayers to Jesus. And uh, the book of Tobit also further supports that, which is one of the reasons why Protestants hated so much. So it is in the Bible. You just have to understand it. And Protestants, because they lack church history, don't understand that. Then you can. Uh, another verse that strengthens that um, this is when Mary proclaimed herself the handmaid of Christ, Protestants don't understand what Mary is doing here. When she says, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. They don't know how powerful that, that verse is. She's saying, hey... My soul is created to draw people to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I am the handmaid of the Lord. She's saying she is the number one servant of Jesus Christ. And all generations will call me blessed for this. She's saying that all generations will call her blessed for this role that she has. So that does affirm we can pray to her. Because as the number one servant, she would be the perfect person to ask a request for on our behalf to the Son. And going, again, going back to Revelation 5.8, it, it shows that people in heaven can do this. 
And yeah, I and would yeah. point. Go ahead, Richard. I, I would point to the wedding feast at Cana, where the host of the party, the host of the wedding party, says, "Okay, we're running out of wine," and he says this to Mary. And Mary says to Jesus, do something about this. And at first Jesus says, well, I don't really want to. And Mary says, do it anyway. And so at that point, we know that Mary is our intercessor to Jesus. I love love the story that you just brought there because if you really read it, if you really honestly read the passage – you have to chuckle a little bit because, you know, and this is another one of those verses where they say that Jesus is being disrespectful to his mother, and he's not. When he says, well, what does their concern have to do with us? It is not yet my time. In other words, Jesus is not saying to Mary, well, you know, why does your concern bother me? Uh, You know, he's not being disrespectful or dismissive to his mother. He's basically saying why are you coming to me with this concern now because my public ministry has not started? My, my, it is not my time. Okay? And Mary doesn't argue with it. She doesn't. She just looks at him and says, do whatever he tells you. Don't listen to him. He'll do it. I asked him to do it. He'll do it. <laughs> it's just, it just, you could just, See the, the interchange between a loving mother and and a son where you know first Jesus protests and says, Well, it's not my time yet, and Mary says, Just do whatever he tells you. Don't worry, don't worry, my son will take care of this. It's just it's just a a, a, a beautiful, beautiful exchange. But it but it goes full circle to exactly what you said. They brought their petition to her. They brought their concern to her. Now, let me tell you something that will blow you away. Because the Protestants will say, well, you know, the Bible really says very little about Mary. Blah, 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 blah. Other than Jesus, who is the person who speaks the most in the Gospels? In the Mary. Of the four Gospels. Do you believe that's Mary. correct, Lewis? That's indeed correct. Yeah. There are more words spoken by Mary in the gospel than any other person except Jesus. So, so you want to know another thing that affirms that Mary is perpetually, you know, queen? Um, I, I actually saw this Protestant, not a Protestant, an Orthodox YouTuber wrote um, basically debunked Protestantism like this. He said, well, if Protestants hold that everything is needed in Scripture to be believed, then I guess the immaculate concept, the the, the concept of Mary being sinless is so much mature because nowhere in Scripture can you find Mary ever committing a single sin anywhere. So if we're going even by their Protestant circular logic, they can't say Mary was a sinner if she's the only other person besides Christ himself that never committed a single sin in Scripture. So, one of the objections that he raised to that was it said that the angel, that after the angel's greeting to her, that she was deeply troubled. 
Now, he basically said that if she was completely sinless, then she would have no fear. She wouldn't be troubled. And what I responded to him is that you're taking the quote out of context. It says she was deeply troubled by the angel's greeting and pondered in her heart what sort of greeting or salutation this might be. That kind of kills the notion that it was hail favored one. <laughs> or hi Mary, how are you doing? God has favored you. It was something much more than that. Uh, she was deeply troubled, and then she was also deeply troubled at how she would conceive or bear a son. How can this be since I know not man? Well, the problem that they have is she was already betrothed to Joseph. Now, the angel hadn't said anything about the miraculous conception from the Holy Spirit yet. He hadn't said that. All he said is she would conceive and bear a son. If, now I'll go to you first, Lewis. If Mary had intended to ever physically consummate her marriage with Joseph, wouldn't she have assumed that, that it would be by Joseph that she would conceive and bear this child? And then, and then the angel would have to correct her and say, oh, no, no, no. Joseph's not going to be the father of this child, the Holy Spirit. But she says, how can this be since I know not man? It's very, very clear that Mary was a perpetual uh, temple virgin and was, had, had every intention of remaining so, right? I mean, it's inescapable in the, in the context of the text, right? Exactly. And um, they'll try to debunk it until then. And I have a wonderful quote that's short by um, Tim Staples, and he did an excellent job explaining how that still doesn't prove that Mary ever had sex. Scripture statement that Joseph knew Mary, not until she brought forth her firstborn, would not necessarily mean they did not know each other after she brought forth Jesus. Until it's often used in Scripture as a part of an idiomatic expression similar to our own work um, usage in English. I may say to you, until we meet again, God bless you. Does that mean necessarily that after we meet again, God will curse you? By no means. A phrase like this is used to emphasize what is being described before the until is fulfilled. It is not intended to say anything about the future beyond that point. Here are some biblical examples. Second um, Samuel 6.23. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. Does this mean that she had children after she died? Of course. First um, Timothy 4.13. Until I come, attempt to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, to teaching, does this mean that Timothy should stop teaching after Paul comes? So it's basic logic. They'll try to, like, grasp in whatever argument they can, but it still falls. And um, they'll say, well, there is no ex direct quote from Scripture that mentions that Mary remained a virgin. Um, and, um, again, that's wrong, too, because if you look to Ezekiel 44, verse 1-2, one, um, one, they'll tell you, And he brought me back to the way of the gate of the outward, outward sanctuary, which looked towards the east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut and none and not be open, and no man shall pass through it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered by it, and it shall be shut. Well, let's use something called common sense. What was the gate entered the world through? Mary. Mary. 
So it wouldn't make it, this verse is foreshadowing her. Um, she was the gate that God used to enter the world through. God used no other gate to enter the world through. So it's talking about her, and it's making it very clear this gate was only reserved for him and nobody else. And you know what's so interesting about that? Is the gate in the temple that, that they refer to, that, that they call the golden gate, that actually refers to Mary. When Herod commissioned the rebuilding of the temple or the renovation of the temple, that was one of the first things they started construction on. Now, Herod uh, was approved or, or, or started the project, approved the project to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem in about 20 BC. Okay? But it would have taken about four years to assemble all of the people and the materials necessary to begin the job. So that means that the temple renovation, the renovation of the, second, of the eastern gate, would have actually started about 16 B.C. Richard, do you know what, what historical event that coincides with? I do not. The birth of the Virgin Mary. So, I mean, that to me is as clear a sign uh, as as you could have that the two uh, are linked. Because if Jesus was born in uh, if Jesus was born in December of two B.C., which we you know believe the evidence strongly supports, uh, and we also believe that Mary was born. Uh, September, it would have been September of about 16 or 17 B.C. It coincides with the starting of the Second Temple. It's, it's absolutely inescapable that, you know, that the two uh, events are linked. God doesn't do anything by accident. That is extremely true, and that's something that they miss then nothing is by mistake, and especially in prophetic terms, because this was a prophecy. So now I will – I know we're going down to – we only have a few minutes left, but uh, I'm going to go to you first, Richard, on this. My argument is that the reason that they believe that we elevate Mary too high <laughs> – Are you okay? You okay? Yeah. No, that was my dog. Oh. <laughs> okay. All right. Gonna... I've got a French oh. bulldog who's sitting here snorting. Okay. Your dog is Catholic. Uh, Very Catholic. Yeah. So anyway, um, I lost my. I just lost my train of thought in that. That kind of scared me. I lost. My, oh. The argument that I was going to make is that um, they don't elevate worship high enough. If, if, if our Mary is on the same level of their, as their Jesus, it is not that our Mary is too high, it's that their Jesus isn't high enough. And part of that is because they don't fully understand what worship is. They don't, uh, worship uh, entails a, a, an ascent to divinity, but it also entails a sacrifice. Uh, and 
there's no sacrifice made to Mary, and unfortunately, in their in their system of things, there's no sacrifice made to Jesus either, because of their their system of worship excludes the sacrifice, and that's very much why they're why they're kind of off the mark here, isn't it, Richard? Is that's exactly why they're off the mark because they don't have Jesus elevated high enough. And so because they don't have Jesus elevated high enough, they think we've got Mary elevated too high. We don't. They don't have Jesus elevated high enough. Have Jesus on the level with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. That makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense, and the reason why that is because they 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 view what happened at at Calvary as 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 uh, clearly just a transactional uh, event that, that 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 God picked up the check, so to speak. Uh, but you know, I think it's a. I think it's a far greater miracle. The, the Catholic understanding is a far greater miracle. It is one thing to say that Jesus did what I could not do, and, and that is, you know, certainly within his power and ability. But to me, it's a far greater miracle that Jesus is able to save me through me. That Jesus is able to save me despite me, despite all my human frailties and faults and problems, many they are. Jesus is still able to save me through grace, through my cooperation with that grace in some mystical way that we can't fathom. Lewis, let me go back to you. I would argue that Catholic understanding is the greater miracle, right? I would fully agree with that, and it's also affirmed just by all of history. All right, guys, we're up against the the, the last minute here. So, um, Lewis, would you would you end us in a closing prayer, please? Okay, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dear Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, thank you for leading us here in being vessels of Christ. No, um, of course, not greater than Mary. But thank you for um, uniting us in the Catholic faith that you started. Please help us to continue to be tools and keep the focus on you and to be saints like the apostles were and your mother was. To strive to be like them as much as we can and to always remember to satisfy you. Please forgive us from when we fail to do your deeds. And always give us the humility to always be open to listening to what you have to teach us so we can teach it to others. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless both of you, and thank you for everything that you do for this apostle and for the greater glory of God. Uh, I'm so blessed and so thrilled to have both of you on our team, and I mean that from... uh, from my heart. So God bless both of you and have a wonderful weekend. Same to you. You
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, an infant formula company on a mission to get a lot closer to the most super, super food on the planet, breast milk. Our patented protein blend has more of the important and most abundant proteins actually found in breast milk. We're the first and only U.S.-made formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk, not skim. We even conducted the largest clinical trial by a new infant formula company in a quarter century with clinically proven benefits like easier digestion, less spit-up, and softer poops versus a leading infant formula. And we make our own formula in the USA and our very own factories in Iowa, Oregon, and Pennsylvania. Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.